Good afternoon, and thanks for joining us for today's webinar. Our topic for today, Monday, September 19th, is defending occupational claims in New York. Today we're going to talk about repetitive orthopedic claims, uh, occupational exposure claims, pulmonary claims, every type of occupational exposure allegation brought by claimants in New York. At the end of today's webinar, you'll be able to respond to questions from your locations, your clients, your insureds, who are asking you questions like, hey, is this occupational exposure claim compensable? If so, how do we defend it? What kind of proofs can we provide to you? Uh, so this will help you facilitate those conversations you have with your location immediately after learning of an occupational claim. Uh, thanks for joining us today. This is uh, uh, part of our uh, webinar series that we do, a different topic every month. The webinar series roughly follows the outline and chapters in my handbook. If you haven't received a copy of your handbook, please request one from us now. We also have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of articles on uh, defending New York workers' compensation claims on the firm website. At that website, you can sign up for our newsletter. Uh, it's very gentle. It's non-spammy. About once a month, we'll send you a sort of a roundup, a summary of everything that's going on. And um, please uh, feel free to use those resources. All right. Today, uh, we're going to talk about uh, the different injury types and what we're going to focus on today. First of all, in New York, uh, physical traumatic injuries, someone slips, falls at work, breaks an arm, ankle, uh, etc. Those are obvious, easy. We understand that those are likely to be compensable workers' compensation claims. We call those specifics or traumatics, right? There was one specific incident that led to the injury. A little bit more difficult in New York, uh, which does allow for mental claims, and those would be psychiatric disability claims or mental injury claims. Um, and then there's a whole range of claims like uh, assaults and retaliations, et cetera, which can also uh, be compensable under our act. And generally speaking, those are handled as uh, traumatic one-time incidents. Today, we're going to be talking about repetitive trauma orthopedic claims and also the sort of exposure claims that we usually see uh, with uh, associated, generally speaking, with pulmonary injuries. Um, Occupational injuries in New York are those injuries which accrue over time, okay, so there's no one specific date of loss. There's a period of exposure to these activities or conditions which then lead to the uh, medical impairment. Um, to be compensable in New York, the burden is on the claimant to show that the condition actually arose out of, uh, from, from the employment and also from something that was specific to or, or a distinctive feature of the employment. Okay, what does that mean? Something peculiar to the employment, not something that we're exposed to, everybody's exposed to. For example, uh, extremes of heat and cold are not really specific to any one employment. Uh, other things like just having to stand or walk a lot, absolutely not specific or distinctive to any one employment. So we're going to talk a little bit more about this as we get into the legal defenses. Uh, we're going to talk about how we defend these from a legal perspective, and then I'm going to give you some practical information on how we practically defend these cases. Um, let's talk about the legal defenses. First, statute of limitations. Two years from when the uh, employee knew or should have known that the alleged condition that they are alleging is related to the employment uh, was disabling or manifested. What does this mean? This means that they've got to come forward and actually make their claim within two years of the date they knew about it. Uh, the challenge in disputing these cases is that the uh, claimant um, will claim that they did not know they had a compensable work-related condition until their usually attorney told them uh, to go get themselves evaluated by a physician. Uh, again, these are typically in the post-separation, post-retirement context, uh, but this, as a defense, the statute of limitations is actually quite weak. Unless we can show that back in time, the petitioner actually was aware 
uh, that they had a condition and that it was related to the employment. And that would typically be something like a physician's note in their medical record saying, hey, I told this person that he's breathing in these fumes at work all day, and that's uh, leading to this uh, pulmonary defect that we are uh, seeing in our pulmonary function test. Something like that. We really need sort of a smoking gun. Uh, to make a successful statute of limitations defense in New York. Okay, next. Uh, the other issue is who actually exposed this person? Um, New York has a concept called date of disablement, and this is sort of a legal fiction. It's usually not the date, last date that they worked, uh, although sometimes it is. But this is the date where the judge says, all right, I am affixing the date of disablement, the date that this impairment uh, became disabling as of X. And sometimes that's the date they first had medical finding them disabled. Sometimes it's the last day they worked or the last time they worked for an employer. Uh, generally speaking, uh, it will be the, last, the first time they lost time from work. However, in many of these occupational cases that we defend, there was no lost time for work because these claims are made post-separation. The uh, claimant has, is no longer working for the insured uh, or that location, and they've been terminated for some other reason, and then they bring the claim. Okay. Uh, Another defense that we have is the defense of lack of causal relationship, and this is really our medical defenses. This is really us arguing, hey, this person may have a pulmonary defect, right? They may have a ventilatory problem. They may have a restrictive pulmonary defect, but, judge, it's absolutely not related to the employment. It's related to their, you know, lifelong smoking history or something else, okay? So uh, this is us arguing that there is no causal relationship between the actual condition and the employment, which is allegedly disabling. And finally, I'm just going to touch on one more topic on the legal sort of aspects of defending these cases, and that topic is apportionment. New York allows apportionment back to prior periods of exposure, back to prior employers. And the reason that's important is uh, the employer last on the risk. Generally speaking, the employer who's found to be the employer for the workers' compensation purposes and what I mean by that is it's the date of disablement has been found during their period of employment, is responsible for paying the medical benefits and any lost time or indemnity benefits which would be due to the claimant. But under Section 44, that employer can then go back and apportion disability, ask for the judge, sorry, to apportion disability, to all the employers that uh, contributed to this overall medical condition. The reason that's a valuable thing to know is that when we're doing our medical discovery during the litigation of the main case, if we're finding periods of time when the claimant was losing time from prior employments or getting medical treatment or the condition itself was fixed, measurable, and arrested during those periods of prior employment, well, we're going to certainly be going forward and asking the judge uh, to apportion exposure to those uh, periods of employment. So that's just something to keep in mind. How do you close occupational claims in New York? Well, basically three ways. First of all, uh, you can take the case all the way to a judgment. You can try these cases. Generally speaking, I recommend my clients deny these cases, and the reason for that is the burden of proof is on the claimant. This is the rare instance where the presumptions run against the claimant. They've got to show there's something about the workforce, some distinctive feature of it that led to their condition, and we'll talk about how we defend that. Second, uh, compromise the vast majority of cases in New York. Uh, we're steering towards a Section 32. That's a lump sum, one-time settlement uh, that is uh, essentially a dismissal of the workers' compensation case. And then finally, uh, some percentage of these cases just get uh, closed due to lack of prosecution, lack of medical evidence, and in New York, the term for that is NFA, no further action, or dismissal administratively. All right, how do we defend these cases? Let's talk about the blood and guts. Practically, what do we do? Um, first, Almost every time you see an occupational case, when you see one, I want you to think to yourself, let's deny this case. 
Again, the reasons for that are you have statutory and legal defenses, and the burden of proof is on the claimant in these cases. Uh, the presumptions do not run in favor of any condition being found compensable. However, if you don't deny the case, remember, this is New York, gotcha state, you're going to be stuck with the claim. Also remember, and, and uh, please go back to our prior webinars when we talk about denials and, and the speed at which denials need to be accomplished, if every case you don't deny, you're, uh, you're accepting. You've got 25 days from that notice of indexing to deny these cases, so don't lose track of it. What happens next? Well, in an occupational case, or any denied case, actually, any denied case, goes on to what we call a rocket docket. Okay, the rocket docket is created by regulation. It essentially says that within 30 days of the, uh, the, the case being um, denied, it will be set down for a pre-hearing conference if, and only if, the claimant shows medical evidence. And then, after there is a pre-hearing conference, all the proofs are in, in essentially 60 days. We call this the rocket docket because from the date of denial until the date uh, the case is actually decided could be as short as 90 days. Obviously, that never helps us as the employer carrier because the more time we get to look into these claims, generally speaking, the better it is for us. The shorter the period of time that we can look into these claims, the better it is for the claimant. Now, there is an exception to the rocket docket rules, which say that in complex cases and occupational cases generally fall into that. Um, they should be removed from the rocket docket, and the judge should afford the parties a more robust uh, discovery period in order to depose physicians and do their medical investigations. Uh, also at that time, we should be looking around to drag in any other employers or carriers who contributed to the overall exposure, again, thinking to yourself about apportionment at the end of the case. Um, the cases generally should be removed from the rocket docket. The only exception is carpal tunnels, uh, and that's because, generally speaking, the methodology of injury and how carpal tunnels actually are treated are quite well understood uh, throughout uh, the court system, so those can stay on the rocket docket. Uh, and again, that's by regulation. All right, so now the case is going to trial. We're litigating the case. You've denied it. We've gone to a pre-hearing conference. We've gotten it off the rocket docket. What's next? What are our considerations? Well, the considerations are what are the actual exposures, okay? Again, most of the context that I see these types of claims, they, they come into like uh, just very few categories. One, generally it's post-separation. The claimant's been terminated, they've been separated, they've been downsized. For whatever reason, they're no longer part of our uh, workforce. And they go to their friendly attorney at law and they file this uh, post-separation occupational exposure claim alleging that they now have a medical impairment. Why are they doing this? Well, because it looks like free money to them. And by the way, there are some employments, and particularly in the unionized context, uh, uh, and I'm thinking generally in the, the construction trades, where just like every employee after the, the project ends goes and files their occupational claims, all right? But we as the employer should think about, hey, do these claims actually make sense? Because uh, we know things about the employment. <coughs> um, and, and we should be considering whether or not we can defend on exposure, okay? And uh, again, sometimes knowing things about the employment or being in contact with the employment uh, is valuable because, hey, they'll say, hey, Greg, there is, there were no, th these fumes were not pleasant present in the workplace, or no, Greg, we had a one-time explosion in the, in, the, in the factory, and yeah, we did expose people to this on this specific date. That's important to know because that means, hey, maybe these cases should have been characterized as traumatic specific incidents rather than occupational exposure cases because they really did arise from a one-time event. Um, knowing things about the employment are valuable in defending the case, also because it helps us prepare our IME physician to give a great opinion on, on causal relationship, right? Because we can defend on that issue. 
Uh, we should be thinking about everything that we can get from the location, the insured. Uh, now, this might be difficult in the carrier context, where you don't have that long ongoing relationship sometimes with your insureds. Um, but for the self-insured employers, this is one of your advantages that you're definitely going to want to rely upon, right? Uh, we know things about the employment. Um, has there been air quality sampling tests? Uh, have we had a lot of ocean inspections? Uh, how about uh, do we have an industrial hygienist who can come in and testify about the location? In other words, can we argue that there actually was no exposure in our location or it was de minimis exposure, et cetera? What do we know? Uh, I've defended cases in which the claimant had an asbestosis claim. Okay, asbestosis claims uh, are rampant in the New York area. You got 100-year-old buildings or 80-year-old buildings that had uh, asbestos insulation all over the place. But if we know things about the location, for example, that there was an asbestos remediation 10 years ago, and I'm, my period of employment is post-remediation, hey, I'm arguing that there was no exposure because it was post-remediation. The place was cleared, right? So let's think about those things. Let's also look at anything like ergonomic studies, were there personal protective equipment that was issued, PPEs, was it used, uh, what kind of records do we have of that, anything we can use to provide additional information to our IME physician. Because remember, the claimant's IME physician is going to give us an opinion that I'll call nothing but net, right? Their opinion says something like, hey, they worked in this place, they have cancer now, ergo, the cancer is due to working in this place, right? Ridiculous opinions. Um, that's what we call a net opinion. It, that we're just saying uh, there is some correlation, so we're going to claim that it's causation, and the doctors don't have enough information. But what if our IME doctor has way more information than the claimant's evaluating physician? Well, I think that their opinion should be given more weight and more credibility. All right. Uh, how do we get that information to the physician? Well, first of all, there is medical discovery that is available in uh, New York workers' compensation. First of all, uh, just on the claim form itself, the C3, they have to tell you when they first got, got treatment and whether they've ever had treatment for this condition in the past. So take a look at that employee claim form. Let's not forget that we can serve C-3.3s, and those are medical re request authorizations, as well as HIPAA requests, so we can get records from prior hospitalizations and uh, all uh, prior treatment. We also get to cross-examine the claimant. That's a wonderful opportunity for us to ask them, like, when did you first get treatment for this, and start listing out their private physicians, uh, personal physicians, I should say. And then finally, remember, the employer is on our side. Sometimes as the carrier, uh, there isn't a wonderful relationship with the employer because this is a one-off case. You don't have a long-term uh, relationship with them. But in the self-insured context and even the carrier context, you should be going to that employer and saying, hey, we need all their health records forever, for every time they lost time for work. And, and that's giving us two things. First, we may be able to push back in time the date of manifestation and maybe argue a statute's defense. But also, we're finding out the name of this claimant's personal physician, and we're going to be able to look back in those records and see what other exposures or where he claims or she claims that they were exposed in other places. So lots of uh, good, useful information to be obtained through medical discovery in New York. Um, we're going to be using that discovery, of course, to argue about manifestation, the date of disablement, et cetera. New York's also a unique state in that uh, every unexplained death case goes for an autopsy. Uh, so in many of our post-death post-separation, post-retirement occupational claims, we have an autopsy to rely upon. And that autopsy will sometimes give a cause of death uh, that we can argue is absolutely not work-related, it's more congenital. So a uh, wonderful uh, thing about New York is the extremely high rate of autopsy in New York. All right, 
Uh, let's talk just briefly about some strategery here. First of all, we get to select our own IME physician. Generally speaking, I think we should be selecting physicians that have wonderful credentials. Uh, sometimes the claimant's attorneys are using sort of general physicians, general practitioners, internal medicine physicians, uh, where uh, maybe we would have been using a, or we are selecting to use a pulmonary physician who's you know, using gold standard pulmonary function tests, et cetera. Uh, so we're able to dispute the credibility or qualifications of the doctor. Um, that IME cover letter, let's make a really well-crafted IME cover letter that really talks about the case and gives the IME physician as much information as we possibly can. Remember, I do get to cross-examine the treating physician, so that's awesome. That's a great opportunity for us to um, poke holes in their case. And New York does have an impartial expert bank that a judge of compensation can refer cases to. Uh, in my opinion, that impartial expert bank, uh, the physicians that are on there are generally claimant-friendly. In fact, some of them uh, actually do claimant evaluations for pay when they're not acting as a quote-unquote, I'm doing air quotes here for you listening along uh, at home, uh, uh, these impartial experts are actually working for plaintiffs' uh, firms in, in some respects. So uh, I don't think that they're impartial. Uh, there are methodologies to d dispute that or to get around that. I mean, for example, you could simply retain the impartials because the list is published. So there are ways of dealing with it. I do not like the impartial expert system generally in New York because, again, the, the physicians are self-selecting themselves onto that impartial list, and uh, they're not truly impartial if they are taking... Uh, cases and getting paid to evaluate claimants in other cases, and I can give examples of that if anyone's interested. All right, so that's a little bit about IMEs. Let's remember uh, we can put the uh, claimant under surveillance to determine exactly how disabling this is. So most of this conversation that we've had today, I've talked about um, disputing causal relationship and actual exposure. But remember, the degree of disability can also be in dispute. And the degree of disability can certainly be challenged by the way of surveillance. And just remember, every dum-dum in America now has a Facebook page, okay? They've all put themselves under self-surveillance. So, you know, there's lots of opportunities to get information. Uh, finally, in order to reduce exposure and sometimes to steer these cases uh, towards, uh, well, we will steer them towards apportionment. We'll say, look, there was actual exposure in the workplace. Look, our own physician is giving causal relationship. All right, let's see how we can sort of steer this back into a different period of exposure. And the focus will be on obtaining apportionment. All right, so that's a little bit about how we defend occupational cases. Uh, absolutely available for anyone who wants to send me. Shoot me an email with questions. I can respond to them. Look forward to that. Uh, Please continue to join us for our webinar series. As you know, it, the uh, upcoming webinars are always published on our website, and you should be getting the uh, upcoming webinars through the links that we're sending you. Uh, next month, our topic is effective use of IMEs and evaluations. It'll be presented by my partner, John Marzola, and my associate, Yusuf Saint. I hope you can join us for that. Thanks again. Have a great day.